Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 12th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with today's weather. Today will be partly sunny with a high of 46 degrees. Tonight will be, uh, we'll have considerable cloudiness with a low of 26 degrees. Tuesday, there will be variable cloudiness with a high of 45 degrees. And now we switch over to local and state news stories. Sioux City Council to weigh urban renewal of airport land. Sioux adjacent property home to vacant World War II era chapel. Dolly A. Butch reports from Sioux City. Two parcels of land at Sioux Gateway Airport's entrance are ripe for commercial development, according to city documents. The Sioux City Council will be asked Monday to approve a resolution that will initiate a three-step urban renewal process to solicit proposals from interested developers. The parcels of land are located at the northeast and southeast corners of Aviation and Discovery Boulevards. Both parcels currently contain some rental housing units, and one is home to a historic World War II-era chapel, which has been vacant for a number of years. Over the past several months, the city has received several leads from developers interested in purchasing and developing the properties. The commercial interest has ranged from lodging to an office building. We've had some inquiries into that land, so we're going to put it out there to see what proposals come in. It will be up to the council to select a proposal if we receive proposals, Economic Development Director Marty Dougherty said. Dougherty explained that the land actually belongs to the city-owned airport. He said the FAA's approval to sell the land had to be obtained, as well as an appraisal. When the land is ultimately sold, he said the airport must receive the fair market value for the land. If the city would discount the land, Doherty said it could use tax increment financing, or TIF, or some other means to reimburse the airport. Whoever would propose to develop it one way or the other, the project would have to reimburse the airport for the fair market value that's required by the FAA. We took the step of having the land released, which means we can go ahead and sell it, and then we got appraisals. We're kind of putting it out there for bids to gauge the interest in it, he said. They could just pay the fair market value, or they could pay some price that we would negotiate. And then, based on maybe a development agreement, if something was built, whether that was a hotel or an office building or whatever, the taxes could be dedicated to the airport until you reach that fair market value. Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore told the Journal Friday the city has agreed to pay for the relocation of the historic chapel and is working on finalizing a site for it. He said the city would like to keep the chapel in the area of its current location, but he said the site needs to be on flat ground, away from the land the city wants to develop. We need to get some numbers on having a foundation for it to sit on, so we're in that process right now. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get that accomplished to clear that land for future development that the city's looking at, he said. We probably should get it moved by springtime when the weather is a little nicer. The council will also be asked Monday to approve a development and minimum assessment agreement for Siouxland Splash, a water park slated to open in summer 2025 along Highway 75. Frontline Development, LLC, a group of local investors, intends to invest an estimated 12 to $15 million to build the water park.
Sioux City currently has several public pools and splash pads, but no water parks. Construction on Siouxland Splash is scheduled to begin this year. On January 22nd, the Council voted unanimously to accept Frontline Development's proposal to purchase land for the development of the multi-phase water park at 3820 Highway 75. During that meeting, Joe Zering, partner and co-owner of Frontline Development, LLC, said the park will have a lazy river, wave pool, and one of the biggest kid zones in the Midwest. We're going to have a huge slide tower with actually a really iconic slide. It's going to be the first one in the United States, Zering said. We're going to really try and make a big impact for Sioux City here. We want to make this a really fun staple in the community. Under the terms of the proposed development agreement, Siouxland Splash LLC would purchase roughly 10 acres at the site at a cost of $22,946 per acre. The group of investors would make a payment of $100,000 at closing, and the balance would be paid over 10 years for a total of $229,460. Siouxland Splash LLC would commit to paying up to $250,000 toward a proportional share of the street improvements and regional storm water pond to serve the site. The group would also enter into a minimum assessment agreement of $7 million beginning January 1, 2026, which would continue for 10 years. In addition to selling Siouxland Splash LLC the 10 acres, the city in turn would provide partial 75% property tax rebates of the new incremental taxes created by the value added to the property. Tax rebate assistance is estimated at $1.7 million over 10 years. The road improvements for an entrance to the site are also part of the proposed development agreement, which states that the city will apply for Iowa DOT RISE grant funding for the improvements. The city would also construct a regional stormwater pond to serve the site at an estimated cost of $367,000, complete the construction of the sanitary sewer line project, and give Siouxland Splash LLC the option to purchase the remainder of the 42-acre site to accommodate future phases of the water park or related development. Iowa Gambling Commission names new administrator. Tina Ike will lead Iowa's Racing and Gaming Commission after holding the interim role since December, the commission announced Friday. The commission named Ike the permanent administrator in a meeting on Friday, saying she stood out through a long and competitive interview process. Nine candidates were interviewed for the position, board member Amy Burkhardt said. Throughout the feedback received and throughout that process, it became very evident that we already have the person in place who is the best candidate to lead our commission forward, she said. The Racing and Gaming Commission is tasked with regulating and overseeing casinos, horse racing, and sports betting in Iowa. Ike has worked for the commission since 2017 as Director of Operations. She became Interim Administrator in December when the previous administrator, Brian Ohorilko left the commission to take an executive position with Prairie Meadows Casino. Ike was paid $143,408 in 2023. According to state records, Ohorilko was paid $217,427. Board members who spoke at the meeting Friday heaped praises onto Ike. 
saying she had high qualifications, a deep knowledge of the state's gambling rules and regulations, and a strong work ethic. I'm honored and I'm humbled by all of those comments and those kind words and your confidence in me, Ike told the commission on Friday, and I really look forward to the challenges to come. Gambling regulations in Iowa have come under some scrutiny with questions over an investigation into illegal sports betting against a number of Iowa college athletes. The investigation was conducted by the Department of Criminal Investigation and not the Racing and Gaming Commission. Ohorlko previously said his decision to, decision to leave the post was not related to the investigation, but told a parent of one student-athlete, a lot of people don't agree with how the investigation was handled, according to court documents. And in local business news, New Horizons, Sarge's Philly time bringing Westside breakfast faves to Morningside, Earl Horlick reports from Sioux City. In the kitchen of a Morningside restaurant, Dustin Carnes grills up a slice of ham, strips of bacon, a sausage link, and an over-easy egg for the perfectly named Hungry Man Breakfast. If that name and that meal sounds familiar to you, it is because the Hungry Man is a main, pardon me, is a menu mainstay at Horizon Family Restaurant, which has been a popular 1220 Triview Avenue eatery for more than 30 years. In October, Mohammed Sarj Sajid purchased Horizon, which has always been known for its all-day breakfast plates, as well as for its stick-to-your-ribs all-American meals. While Sajid plans on keeping Horizon's menu intact, the Sioux City-based businessman is bringing many of Horizon's breakfast favorites to Sarge's Philly time, the 4006 Morningside Avenue restaurant he runs with Carnes. Our customers had been clamoring for breakfast items, and Horizon had the best breakfast menu in town, Carnes explained. Now you can get Horizon's breakfast specialties on the west side of Sioux City, as well as in Morningside which is good news for Carnes, who has literally worked in the restaurant for most of his life. Beginning his career as a busboy at the iconic Harvey's, Carnes was eventually promoted to a line cook at the Riverside Diner. After that, after that he helped open Greek to Me, which specialized in creative Grecian cuisine like gyros, pasticcio, and spicy Greek nachos. Yet the ambitious Carnes always wanted to own his own restaurant. Partnering with Sajid, the old family friend, he opened Sarge's Philly Time in 2023. The restaurant is best known for being the home of Build Your Own Philly. In case you didn't know, the classic cheesesteak, chopped steak, cooked onions, and plenty of gooey cheese was immortalized by Italian immigrants in Philadelphia during the first half of the 20th century. At Sarge's Philly Time, you can build your Philly with steak and chicken, along with a multitude of cheese and veggie options. The restaurant also serves plenty of wraps, sandwiches, and burgers, in addition to Midwestern faves like chicken fried steak and pork tenderloin. Shortly after opening Philly Time, Carnes noticed regular customers considered the restaurant to be part of the neighborhood. Morningside has plenty of chain restaurants, he said, but Philly Time was locally owned and they liked it. Carnes also discovered that his regular customers also liked his made-from-scratch meals. Indeed, Sarge's Philly Time will continue to serve all of the original meals that they're known for. The only thing that has changed is the addition of breakfast foods from Horizon, made fresh and on-site by Carnes and his crew. Well, that in an earlier start time. 
will now be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., he said. We've only started with the new breakfast hours a week ago, and it is already successful. Working in the kitchen, Carnes is all smiles when preparing an abundance of breakfast foods. My crew always asks me how I'm able to stay in the good mood in a good mood when we're being slammed with orders, he said. In my case, I love cooking and being in the kitchen. As he plates up waffles topped with strawberries and a zigzag line of whipped cream, Karn said, I love what I do. Now we turn to national and world news. Israel rescues two hostages. Strikes come after Biden urges restraint on Rafah operation from Rafah in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli military said it rescued two hostages from captivity in the Gaza Strip early Monday. It identified the men as Fernando Simon Marman, 60, and Louis Har, 70. It said both men were kidnapped by Hamas militants from Kibbutz near Yitzhak in the October 7th cross-border attack that started the four-month Israel-Hamas war. The rescue took place in the southern border town of Rafah. The army says both men are in good medical condition. They are among the the 136 hostages that Israel says remain in Hamas captivity. The rescue came after a series of Israeli strikes early Monday hit Rafah, the city on the southern edge of the Gaza Strip, where 1.4 million Palestinians have fled to escape fighting elsewhere in the four-month Israel-Hamas war. Israel has been signaling its ground offensive in Gaza may soon target the densely populated city on the Egyptian border. On Sunday, President Joe Biden told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel should not conduct a military operation against the Hamas militant group in the densely populated Gaza border town of Rafah without a credible and executable plan to protect civilians, the White House said. The Israeli military said it struck terror targets in the area of Shabura, which is a district in Rafah. The military statement said the series of strikes had concluded without elaborating on the targets or assessing the potential damage or casualties. Palestinian health officials did not immediately offer any casualty information. Biden's remarks were his most forceful language yet on the possible operation. Biden, who last week called Israel's military response in Gaza over the top, also sought urgent and specific steps to strengthen humanitarian aid. Israel's Channel 13 television said the conversation lasted 45 minutes. Discussion of the potential for a ceasefire agreement took up much of the call, a senior U.S. administration official said. And after weeks of diplomacy, a framework pretty much is now in place for a deal that could see the release of remaining hostages held by Hamas in exchange for a halt to fighting. The official, who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss negotiations, acknowledged that gaps remain, but declined to give details. The official said military pressure on Hamas in the southern city of Khan Yunus in recent weeks helped bring the group closer to accepting a deal. Biden and Netanyahu spoke after two Egyptian officials and a Western diplomat said Egypt threatened to suspend its peace treaty with Israel if troops are sent into Rafah, where Egypt fears fighting could push Palestinians into the Sinai Peninsula and force the closure of Gaza's main aid supply route. The threat to suspend the Camp David Accords, a cornerstone of reasonable, pardon me, 
regional stability for nearly a half century came after Netanyahu said sending troops into Rafah was necessary to win the four-month war against Hamas. Milestone marked by tension. 45th anniversary comes as growing turmoil grips Mideast amid Gaza war. From Tehran, Iran. Iran marked the 45th anniversary of the 1979 Islamic Revolution on Sunday, amid tensions gripping the wider Middle East over Israel's continued war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Thousands of Iranians marched through major streets and squares, decorated with flags, balloons, and banners with revolutionary and religious slogans. In Tehran, crowds waved Pardon me. In Tehran, crowds waved Iranian flags, chanted slogans, and carried placards with the traditional Death to America and Death to Israel written on them. Some burned U.S. and Israeli flags, a common practice in pro-government rallies. Processions started out from several points, converging at Az- Azadi Square in the capital. State TV showed crowds in many cities and towns, claiming that millions participated in the rallies across the country. The military displayed a range of its missiles, including the Qasem Soleimani and Sejil ballistic missiles, the Simorg satellite carrier, and drones at the square where people took selfies with them. During the celebrations, a power trooper jumped from a plane while displaying a Palestinian flag. Many high-ranking Iranian Iranian officials attended the celebrations in Tehran, including hardline president Ibrahim Raisi. He addressed the crowds in Azadi Square and called on the United Nations in a speech broadcast by State TV to expel the Zionist regime, as the crowds chanted, Death to Israel. Raisi also said the bombing of Gaza has to be stopped as soon as possible. The commander of the powerful Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, General Mohammed Salami and General Esmail Ghani, the head of the expeditionary force of Iran's paramilitary Revolutionary Guard, also took part in the celebrations, while the head of the judiciary body, Ghulam Hossein Mohseni Ejeri, was at the rally in the central city of Isfahan. There was a heavy security presence in major cities across the country. The anniversary came a month after a deadly attack by the extremist Islamic State group in the central city of Karman left at least 95 people dead during the commemoration for prominent Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, whom the U.S. killed in a 2020 drone strike. Iran tried to blame the U.S. and Israel for the attack as the Israeli offensive in the Gaza Strip continued. The Islamic Republic launched missile attacks on Iraq and Syria. It then struck alleged anti-Iran Sunni militant group Jaish al-Al targets in nuclear-armed Pakistan, which responded with its own strikes on Iran, further raising tensions in a region inflamed by the Israel-Hamas war. Earlier in January, a drone attack killed three U.S. troops in Jordan, which an umbrella group for Iran-backed factions known as the Islamic Resistance in Iraq claimed. The U.S. said it held Tehran responsible. Iran threatened to decisively respond to any U.S. attack on the Islamic Republic. 
The Islamic Revolution began with widespread unrest in Iran over the rule of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Shah fled the country in January 1979. Ayatollah Ruola Khomeini returned from exile and the government fell on February 11, 1979. Senate pushes forward with Ukraine aid package. Rare weekend vote comes as Trump allies in-house double down. From Washington. As a growing number of Republicans oppose U.S. aid to Ukraine, the Senate's leaders are arguing in strong terms that the money is crucial to pushing back against Russian President Vladimir Putin and maintaining America's global standing. In the Capitol for a rare weekend session, the Senate voted again to move forward with the assistance, as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, and Republican Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky issued stark warnings about the consequences of abandoning longtime U.S. allies in Europe. Today, it's no exaggeration to say that the eyes of the world are on the United States Senate, McConnell said. Our allies and partners are hoping that the indispensable nation, the leader of the free world, has the resolve to continue. The 67-27 test vote Sunday on the $95.3 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other countries comes as former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, is trying to kill the assistance and has escalated his attacks on the NATO military alliance. Without mentioning Trump by name, McConnell said in his opening remarks Sunday that American leadership matters, and it is in question. The Senate is pushing through several procedural votes on the slimmed-down package after an attempt to pair it with legislation to stem migration at the U.S. border collapsed. Objections from Republicans adamantly opposed to the aid have been delayed, pardon me, have delayed quick action, forcing the weekend votes. NATO leader, Trump putting allies at risk. From Warsaw, Poland. The head of the NATO military alliance warned Sunday that Donald Trump was putting the safety of U.S. troops and their allies at risk after the Republican presidential frontrunner said Russia should be able to do, quote, whatever the hell they want, end quote, to NATO members who don't meet their defense spending targets. Any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U.S., and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said in a statement. Speaking Saturday at a rally in Conway, South Carolina, Trump recalled how, as president, he told an unidentified NATO member that he would encourage Russia to do as it wishes in cases of NATO allies who are delinquent. Trump's remarks caused deep concern in Poland. Defense Secretary Austin hospitalized. From Washington, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized again Sunday to address a bladder issue as he continues to recover from prostate cancer and has transferred authorities to his de- and has transferred authorities to his deputy, the Pentagon said. Austin was diagnosed with prostate cancer in December and continues to deal with complications from his treatment. At about 2.20 p.m. Sunday, he was transported by his security detail to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center to be seen for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder said in a statement, 
while Austin initially intended to retain the functions and duties of his office, at about 5 p.m. Sunday, he transferred those authorities to Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. As of Sunday evening, he remained hospitalized, Ryder said. Church Shooting A woman in a trench coat opened fire with a long gun Sunday inside celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's megachurch in Texas before being gunned down by two off-duty officers who confronted her. A five-year-old boy with her was critically injured, authorities said. Drone Attack Russian forces launched 45 drones over Ukraine on Sunday in a five-and-a-half-hour barrage, officials said, as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky continued the reshuffle of his war cabinet as the war enters its third year. Migrants New York is expanding a curfew to more migrant shelters after violent incidents attributed to migrant shelter residents gained national attention in recent weeks. Mayor Eric Adams' spokesperson said Sunday. Taliban release. Two Afghan prisoners who were held in U.S. custody for at least 14 years at the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center after 2002 were released from house arrest in Oman, a Taliban spokesman said Sunday. Election. Allies of imprisoned Pakistani ex-premier Imran Khan won more seats in national elections than the political parties who ousted him from power nearly two years ago, according to a final tally of results published Sunday. And finally, UK outing. King Charles III cheerfully waved to well-wishers Sunday as he left church services near his country estate in eastern England, making his first public appearance since his cancer diagnosis was announced last week. Before we move ahead to Super Bowl news, uh, we have one story of Iowa State uh, College sports. Clark approaching NCAA women's scoring record. From Lincoln, Nebraska. Caitlin Clark's pursuit of the NCAA women's career scoring record will continue for at least four more days after her 31-point performance in No. 2 Iowa's 82-79 loss to Nebraska on Sunday. The generational talent who has brought unprecedented attention to women's basketball came into the game 39 points from passing Kelsey Plum's total of 3,527 for Washington from 2013-17. Clark went scoreless the last 12 and a half minutes against Nebraska and now needs eight points to break the record. She likely will do it Thursday night in Iowa City against Michigan. It's not at the front of my mind right now, Clark said, really just getting better and getting back home and playing in front of our fans and executing the way we know we can execute is very important for this team. We'll have two practices to get ready for that. Yeah, obviously it will be special. The biggest focus right now is just finding ways to grow and get better. Plum, who is with Team USA, playing in an Olympic qualifying tournament in Belgium, offered premature congratulations to Clark on X, formerly known as Twitter. Plum corrected herself within minutes, writing, My bad, next game. Fans began lining up in sub-freezing weather six hours before tip-off to enter Pinnacle Bank Arena. Clark has never scored fewer than 30 points in nine games against Nebraska, and many fans came with the hope they would see her make history. The Huskers changed up their defenses on Clark. Callan Hake, 
Jazz Shelley and Kendall Moriarty took turns playing her straight up. They put double teams on her up high and went to a box and one on her in the second half. Clark pulled within single digits of the record when she made two free throws following a technical foul on Nebraska late in the third quarter. She didn't score again. Clark missed her final six shots from the field and finished 10 of 25 overall and 5 of 15 on three-pointers. The game had been sold out since early January, and sellers on the secondary ticket market were asking as much as $2,000 for a seat in the lower bowl late in the week. Five preteen girls in an end zone section, each holding up a letter to spell out Clark, started a Caitlin Clark chant 90 minutes before tip-off. Cheers increased in volume when Clark was first spotted in the tunnel from the locker room to the court. Fans leaning on the railing reached down in hopes of getting a hand slap as she came through. Next was a standing ovation when Clark, escorted by a security guard, stepped onto the court to begin shooting drills. She shot alone for five minutes before teammates joined her. Kim Malone of Omaha showed up at about 8.15 a.m., carrying a sign reading, Feels like a great day to drop a 40-piece. Let her cook. Goat 22. We're here early because we love Caitlin Clark and what she's done for women's basketball, Malone said. I play Division Two. My daughter plays. We love basketball. To watch all these people come, it's just amazing. Malone said she admires the fearlessness with which Clark plays. She's like the closest thing to Kobe Bryant for us, and we love Kobe, she said. Her work ethic and her pursuit to be the greatest is incredible, but then she doesn't get lost in that. She includes everybody. Her passes are incredible. She's one of a kind. Nick Ames of Lincoln was the first person waiting to enter the arena, arriving at 6.45 a.m. He came to root for Nebraska and wore a t-shirt saying, I'm Kevin O'Hare's favorite cousin. O'Hare is Clark's shooting coach. I'm here to heckle today because I do not want her to get that record, and I just thought the shirt and bringing him up would be something to get in her mind a little bit, said Ames, adding that his mission was to get as close to the court as he could so she would see the shirt. I'm a Husker fan. She can get it at home if she wants it. After Clark breaks the NCAA record, her next target will be the all-time major women's college scoring record of 3,649 by Kansas's Lynette Woodard from 1977 to 81. During Woodard's era, women's sports were governed by the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 12th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to Super Bowl news. Doubling down. Chiefs rally in Vegas, beat 49ers for second straight title. Rob Motti reports from Las Vegas. Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and Andy Reid have made the Kansas City Chiefs a dynasty. They're already thinking three-peat. First, they had to become the first back-to-back Super Bowl champions in 19 years. Mahomes made sure of it, leading another super comeback on the NFL's biggest stage in America's showcase capital. Mahomes threw a three-yard touchdown pass to McCole Hardman in overtime, and the Chiefs rallied to beat the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 on Sunday, becoming the NFL's ninth repeat Super Bowl champs. 
With pop star Taylor Swift watching boyfriend Kelsey from a suite, the Chiefs captured their third title in five years, a run that puts them among the league's greatest franchises. Well, you know, the goal has always been to get three, Kelsey screamed on stage after sharing a kiss with Swift. But we couldn't get here without getting that two and having that target on our back all year. How about that? We get a chance to do it three times in a row. The NFL's first Super Bowl in Las Vegas was a sloppy, mistake-filled affair that was mostly boring until the back-and-forth fourth quarter and overtime. It was the second of 58 Super Bowls to be tied after regulation, and the first played under new overtime rules that ensured both teams got the ball. The Chiefs, who were at 15-6, and six, trailed 22-19 after Jake Moody kicked a 27-yard field goal on the first possession of overtime. But Mahomes rallied the Chiefs, completing another impressive comeback in a rematch of the Super Bowl four years ago. Mahomes ran eight yards on fourth and one to keep the Chiefs' chances alive and then scrambled 19 yards to set up the winning score, which came 14 minutes and 57 seconds into the extra period, just before what would have been the second overtime. With all the adversity we've been through this season to come through tonight, I'm proud of the guys, said Mahomes, who earned his third Super Bowl MVP award. This is awesome. Legendary. After he connected with a wide-open Hardman, the Chiefs ran on the field as red and yellow confetti fell onto the turf. Mahomes and Reed are now halfway to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, who won six championships in 20 years together with the New England Patriots and were the most recent team to go back-to-back following the 2003-04 seasons. The 28-year-old Mahomes becomes the fourth starting quarterback to win three Super Bowls, joining Brady, Joe Montana, Terry Bradshaw, and Troy Aikman, and second youngest. I am going to celebrate tonight, celebrate at the parade, and then work my way to get back in this game next year, Mahomes said. I am going to do whatever I can to be back in this game next year, three-peat. The most excitement in the first half came when a frustrated Kelsey bumped Reed on the sideline, knocking the Chiefs' 65-year-old coach a few steps back after teammate Isa Pacheco fumbled inside the red zone during the second quarter. You guys saw that, Kelsey said. I'm going to keep it between us unless my mic'd up tells the world. I was just telling him how much I loved him. The action picked up after a crucial blunder by San Francisco's special teams set up Mahomes' 16-yard touchdown pass to Marquez Valdez-Scantling for a 13-10 lead. Brock Purdy and the 49ers, who were at 14-6, answered, but they couldn't make enough plays, denying Mr. Irrelevant an opportunity to go from last pick in the 2022 NFL Draft to Super Bowl champion. We have the offense to score touchdowns, and I failed to put the team in position to do that, Purdy said. Niners wide receiver Jawan Jennings threw a touchdown pass and caught one, joining Eagles quarterback Nick Foles six years ago as the only players to do both in the Super Bowl. After Moody's 53-yard field goal, gave the Niners a 19-16 lead with 1 minute 53 seconds remaining, Mahomes and Kelsey went to work. Mahomes connected with Kelsey for a 22-yard gain to set up Harrison Butker's tying kick, 
a 29-yarder with three seconds left. A holding call on Kansas City's Trent McDuffie extended San Francisco's opening drive of overtime, and Purdy made key throws to drive the 49ers to the Chiefs' nine, but San Francisco settled for a field goal. Purdy, Christian McCaffrey, and the Niners jumped ahead 10-0, but that's no big deal for Mahomes and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. They've trailed by 10 points in all three of their victories, including last year's 38-35 win over Philadelphia. Mahomes wasn't at his best early and threw an interception, but with the game on the line, he was a magician once again. He finished 34-46 of for 333 yards and two touchdowns. The Chiefs were hardly dominant during the regular season and entered the playoffs as the AFC's number three seed. They won at Buffalo and at Baltimore in the postseason, the first road playoff games of Mahomes' career, and entered the Super Bowl as two-and-a-half-point underdogs, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. The Kansas City Chiefs are never underdogs. Just know that, Mahomes said. They became the first team to win consecutive Super Bowls as underdogs. The Philadelphia Eagles were slight favorites a year ago. The game turned when San Francisco's Ray Ray McLeod couldn't scoop a punt that hit teammate Daryl Luter Jr.'s leg, and the Chiefs recovered at the 49ers' 16, leading to Mahomes' go-ahead touchdown pass to Valdez Scantling. The Niners answered on the next possession, with Purdy tossing a 10-yard touchdown pass to Jennings for a 16-13 lead. Moody's extra point was blocked. Niners coach Kyle Shanahan gambled on 4th and 3 from the Chiefs' 15, passing up a chance for a tying field goal. Purdy hit George Kittle for a 4-yard gain and then found Jennings for the score. Shanahan resorted to trickery for the only touchdown of the first half. Jennings, a wide receiver who had never thrown a pass in an NFL game, tossed a 21-yard touchdown to McCaffrey. He was hit as he threw a wobbly pass across the field, but McCaffrey snagged it and sprinted to the end zone. Shanahan fell to 0-2 as a head coach in Super Bowls and 0-3 overall, including a loss when he was offensive coordinator for Atlanta. That was the game in which Brady and the Patriots rallied from a 28-3 deficit to win in overtime. When you go against guys like Tom Brady and Pat Mahomes, you never feel comfortable with a lead. Those guys are two of the best to ever play the game, Shanahan said. There were plenty of stars in the building as the NFL brought its biggest game to this gambling mecca, once a taboo idea. Jay-Z, LeBron James, and Paul McCartney were among the celebrities in the crowd. Post Malone sang America the Beautiful, Reba McIntyre performed the national anthem, and Usher electrified the crowd at halftime. He brought out a number of guests, including Alicia Keys, H.E.R., Jermaine Dupri, Lil Jon, and Ludacris. Attendance was announced at 61,629 at the relatively compact Allegiant Stadium, the smallest crowd in Super Bowl history except for the pandemic game in Tampa, Florida, three years ago. It didn't start out well, but thanks to Mahomes, those fans ended up seeing one of the best Super Bowl finishes. In other Super Bowl news, Mahomes earns third MVP award. Dave Scretta reports from Las Vegas. The San Francisco 49ers gave Patrick Mahomes two opportunities to drive for the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. 
They should have known, who doesn't at this point, that it was one too many. After leading the Chiefs downfield late in regulation, only to settle for a tying field goal with three seconds left to force overtime, Mahomes capitalized on his second chance. The Chiefs' sturdy defense held the 49ers to a field goal of their own, and with the ball back in his hands, Mahomes marched the defending champions right downfield on a touchdown drive to remember. He scrambled for a pair of first downs, including one on fourth and one with the game on the line, and was eight for eight passing on the drive. The last was a three-yard toss to McCole Hardman to finish off their heart-stopping 25-22 victory. The drive earned the Chiefs' star quarterback his third Super Bowl MVP honor. This is awesome, Mahomes said simply, legendary. Fitting way to put it for a 28-year-old quarterback quickly reaching legendary status. Mahomes is only the sixth quarterback to win three Super Bowls and was selected MVP for all three, and the youngest to do it. Hall of Famers Joe Montana and Terry Bradshaw are well within reach with four apiece. And given how quickly Mahomes has been stacking up those shiny Lombardi trophies in Kansas City, it's hard to believe Brady's record of seven is untouchable. Mahomes is also closing on Brady's record for Super Bowl MVPs. Brady won five, while Montana is the only other player with three. I think Tom said it best. Once you win that championship, you have those parades and you get those dreams, you're not the champion anymore. You have to come back to that with the same mentality, Mahomes said. And I learned from guys like that that have been the greatest of all time. The Chiefs became the first repeat Super Bowl champion since Brady and the Patriots in 2003 and 04, and their third title in four trips over the past five years puts them in rarefied air. Only four teams have won three championships in a five-year span. Asked whether the Chiefs have achieved dynasty status, Mahomes replied, it's the start of one. In truth, Mahomes struggled for much of the game Sunday, especially because the 49ers refused to bring the blitz, which the two-time league MVP tears apart with ease. But he started to heat up in the fourth quarter when he drove Kansas City for a field goal to tie it at 16 with 5 minutes 46 left. Then when he drove for another field goal that sent the game to overtime. Impressive stuff from a quarterback who had surprisingly struggled in the clutch this season. Mahomes was just 18 of 47 for 167 yards with no touchdowns and an interception with a chance to tie or take the lead in the fourth quarter or overtime. I don't think Pat knows how to lose, Chiefs wide receiver Rasheed Rice said. Mahomes celebrated winning by sprinting like mad into the end zone. He wheeled around with his helmet held aloft and headed all the way back to Kansas City sideline. There, with nobody around him for the briefest of moments, Mahomes fell onto the yellow-painted turf and stared into the sky in what seemed to be an exhausting mixture of elation and disbelief, as if anyone should have any reason not to believe in Mahomes by now. We've got the best quarterback in the league, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey said. Mahomes finished the Super Bowl with 333 yards passing and two touchdowns, and he extended his franchise record for yards rushing in the playoffs with 66 more. The head-scratching interception he threw into heavy coverage early in the game was forgotten by the time he hit Hardman in the end zone, sending red and yellow confetti raining down inside Allegiant Stadium. 
I hope people remember not only the greatness we have on the field, but the way we've done it, Mahomes said. I feel like we enjoy it every single day. We have fun. We play hard. It's not always pretty, but we fight to the very end. I know there's some fatigue sometimes with one team winning, he said, but we just try to enjoy it. We try to enjoy it. And now these stories from the NBA. Celtics withstand late rally to top heat from Miami. Jason Tatum had 26 points, 10 rebounds, and 9 assists, and the Boston Celtics withstood a late rally to beat the Miami Heat 110-106 to on Sunday. Kristaps Porzingis scored 25 points, Jalen Brown had 20 points, and Drew Holiday made 15 for Boston, which hit 16 of 39 three-pointers. The Celtics have won all three matchups with the Heat this season and have won six of the past seven games against them. The loss came in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals last season when Boston forced the deciding game after losing the first three. Tyler Harrow had 22 of his 24 points in the second half. Bam Adebayo scored 22 and Duncan Robinson and Caleb Martin finished with 15 points each for the Heat. Miami rallied from a 15-point deficit in the third quarter and cut it to 106-104 on Harrow's three-pointer with 1 minute 49 seconds remaining. But Porzingis and Tatum each converted two free throws to secure the win. The Heat were without leading scorer Jimmy Butler, who was granted a leave of absence because of the death of a family member. Thunder 127, Kings 113. Shai Gilgeous Alexander had 38 points, Jalen Williams scored 32, and Oklahoma City beat visiting Sacramento. Williams also had 9 assists and 7 rebounds for the Thunder, who beat the Kings for the first time this season. Damantas Sabonis had 21 points, 14 assists, and 11 rebounds for Sacramento. Malik Monk led the team in scoring with 26 points. De'Aaron Fox, who was averaging nearly 27 points per game, was held to 15 points on 6 of 17 shooting. And coming up, Cavs look for 10th straight win when they host 76ers Tuesday. The way the Cleveland Cavaliers are playing now, the only thing that could slow their incredible run is the week-long All-Star break that begins February 15th. The Cavs will try to win their 10th straight game on Tuesday when they host the Philadelphia 76ers. Cleveland has won 17 of its past 18 games. The 76ers are heading in the opposite direction. They are 2-6 over their past 10 games. Joel Embiid, the Sixers' star center and reigning NBA MVP, is recovering from left knee surgery performed February 6th. The Sixers are hopeful Embiid will be ready for the playoffs. Without him, there is no guarantee they won't sink out of the top six into play-in tournament contention in the Eastern Conference. (laughs) We're hopeful, 76ers President Daryl Morey told reporters on February 9th. Feedback has been more good than bad since we first heard about what led to his procedure. So we're hopeful and we're building the team to make it better this year. Obviously, it's not at 100%, but with Joel playing at an MVP level, hopefully he could get back to that. Cleveland, meanwhile, weathered the storm without Darius Garland, 
with a fractured jaw, and Evan Mobley, who had knee surgery, for about six weeks from mid-December to the last week in January. The Cavs evolved into a team that relied on three-point shooting more than they did before Mobley and Garland were injured. Coach J.B. Bickerstaff was concerned about how he would reincorporate the pair into the starting lineup without disrupting what was making the team successful. It's safe to say it hasn't been a problem. Evans's game is going to be flawless at some point, Bickerstaff told reporters in Toronto on February 10th after Mobley scored 17 points and grabbed 11 rebounds in a victory over the Raptors. He worked so hard at it. He wants to be great. This isn't just a pastime for him because he's 7 feet tall. The Cavs have won 19 games by 10 or more points. It will be interesting to watch how they respond in tight games in the playoffs since they haven't been under that kind of pressure during this streak. But for now, everything is going their way. Max Struess, acquired from the Heat in July, is a big part of the surge. Struess scored 14 points and dished out 7 assists in the win over the Raptors. Five of his assists were on baskets scored by center Jarrett Allen, who scored 18 points and pulled down 15 rebounds. There's a chemistry there, Bickerstaff said. Max is so unselfish, he just makes the right play. He's a complete basketball player. He doesn't take bad shots. And one stat of the day for the NBA, 10. Stephen Curry hit a 33-foot three-pointer with .7 seconds left to help the Golden State Warriors beat the Phoenix Suns 113-112 to on Saturday. It was Curry's 10th career winning shot with 5 seconds or under remaining. And we'll close out with these stories from the NHL. Barkov snaps long scoring drought. Panthers never worried about their captain. Alexander Barkov was never really worried, neither was his coach. But there was still a sigh of relief when the Florida Panthers' captain's wrist shot got past a sprawling Alexander Georgiev midway through the third period of Florida's 4-0 shutout win over the Colorado Avalanche on Saturday. It feels good, Barkov said. It's been a while. Nearly two months if we want to get specific. Barkov's last goal prior to Saturday came on December 16th. He went a stretch of 18 games, not including the three he missed due to an unspecified lower body injury, without finding the back of the net before finally snapping that streak. The Panthers, though, weren't too concerned, especially since Barkov was still making his presence known despite his lack of goals. In the 18-game run without a goal, Barkov still produced 19 assists, tied for the sixth most in the NHL during that stretch, and was his usual dominant defensive self. According to the Advanced Hockey Statistics website Natural Stat Trick, the Panthers controlled 58.06% of shot attempts when Barkov was on the ice for 5-on-5 play during those 18 games and only allowed 8 goals at full strength. Of his 19 assists, an astonishing 13 went to Sam Reinhardt, with eight, or, with 8 of those 13 coming on the power play and another coming shorthanded. The other, pardon me, the other 8, one apiece to Gustav Forsling, Aaron Ekblad, Evan Rodriguez, Oliver Ekman-Larsen, Carter Verhaeg, 
and Matthew Tkachuk. We're good, Panthers coach Paul Maurice said after practice Friday. Everybody's happy. I don't need Barkov scoring. I need the the line outperforming the line they play against. I don't care if it's all going to be in Reinhardt's bucket. It's good to be his agent. On Saturday, Barkov also assisted on both of Florida's power play goals by Tkachuk and Reinhardt in the first period before scoring his goal. It was Barkov's team-leading sixth game with at least three points this season and the 50th overall of his career, surpassing Jonathan Huberdeau for the all-time franchise record. It's just all about us working hard. We're trying to shoot the puck, Barkov said. Obviously, we have a great team here. It doesn't matter who scores the goals. I know it's been Reinhardt and Verheg scoring all the time, but it doesn't matter who scores them as long as we win and we play the right way. Barkov now has 52 points on the season. It's Barkov's ninth consecutive season with at least 50 points tied with Ali Jokinen from 2002-03 and 2011-12 for the second most 50-point seasons by a Finnish-born player according to NHL stats. Jari Curry has the record with 10 from 1980-81 to 1990-91. Barkov's goal was also the 255th of his career, tying Saku Koivu for the foremost for the fourth most all-time among Finnish-born NHLers. The three he trails, Timu Sulain at 684, Curry, 608, and Jokinen at 321. Canucks 3, Capitals 2 in overtime. J.T. Miller scored just before the end of overtime, Thatcher Demko made 32 saves, and NHL-leading Vancouver ended a two-game skid by beating Washington in the traditional Super Bowl matinee in the nation's capital. Despite Alex Ovechkin scoring again, the Capitals lost for a sixth time in seven games. Ovechkin has a goal in each of the past five games to reach 13 this season and 833 for his career, 60 away from breaking Wayne Gretzky's record, his longest such streak since March 2021. Blues 7, Canadians 2. Jordan Kiru scored twice, Tory Krug had five assists, and St. Louis earned a victory at Montreal. Robert Thomas had a goal and three assists, and Jake Neighbors added a goal and one assist for the Blues, who have won seven of their past eight. Jordan Binnington made 30 saves. The Canadians lost their second game in a row. And finally, the NHL stat of the day. First, Mackenzie Wegar scored his first career hat trick on Saturday. The defenseman helped Calgary earn its season-high fourth straight win. Wegar 30 is in his eighth NHL season and second with the Flames. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 12th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.